Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Welcome to Criminalia, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. More than 5 million people in the United States today collect, preserve, and trade or sell postage stamps. The hobby, or investment, is known as philately. Notable philatelists around the world have included some very recognizable names, like musician Freddie Mercury, former world chess champion Anatoly Karpov, Amelia Earhart, who was the first woman to fly across the Atlantic Ocean, and Franklin D. Roosevelt, who was the 32nd president of the United States. The first stamp forgeries began to show up when stamps began to show up. The Penny Black, which was the world's first adhesive stamp, was issued in 1840, and the world's first forged stamps followed later that same year. By 1863, the book, Forged Stamps, How to Detect Them, authored by Thornton Lewes and Edward Pemberton, was published in an effort to help anyone interested in stamps differentiate between forgeries and genuine works. Stamp collecting has been called the hobby of kings and the king of hobbies. And for a time in the early 20th century, a man named Sparati was king. Welcome to Criminalia. I'm Maria Tremarchi. And I'm Holly Fry. Giovanni Disperati was born in Pistoia, in the Tuscany region of Italy, in October of 1884. Or possibly Pisa? There are varying accounts about Sparati's life as a kid and young adult, and the most commonly told version goes like this. His father was a retired colonel. His mother, Marie Arnolfi, was daughter of Italian General Trofimo Arnolfi. Some accounts of Sperati's childhood suggest that one of his brothers, Emilio, served in the military. His eldest brother, Massimo, was a stamp dealer in Pisa. And another brother, Mariano, was a photographer in Bologna, where Giovanni, it said, learned a lot about photography and chemical processes. There are accounts that overlap with this one, suggesting that there was also a paper mill involved that influenced Sperati during his childhood although it's unclear if that mill belonged to his cousin, uncle, or maybe even his father. 
It's in that mill where Sperati learned how different varieties of paper were produced. These were the paper fabrication skills and knowledge that he went on to use as an adult who forged stamps. Sperati attended the Academy of Sciences of the Institute of Bologna, where he studied accounting. But he couldn't shake his love of the artistry of stamps. There are differing versions of how Sperati began his lifelong career making fake stamps. Some experts say his brother, Massimo, the stamp expert in the family, may have been to blame for his younger brother's line of work, as well as for imparting him with a love of stamps in general. He may have been the first to ask him to try to copy a few stamps, just for fun, of course. An alternate, though nearly identical, story about Sperati can also be found, but with two details changed. He was a young adult living in France, and it was a couple of Parisian dealers who wanted to see what he could produce. Whether in Italy or in France, Sperati's first fakes have been described as rough fabrications, especially if you compare them to his precise later works. But in both accounts, brother or Parisian dealer, the product was good enough to sell as genuine to some gullible stamp collectors. But then there's another account of how Sperati may have gotten involved in stamp forgery, and this one suggests he learned it by watching his mother. In this version of his childhood story, his mother took up stamp forgery when the family's finances were tight, and he grew up around the deceptive art. There are even a few accounts that suggest a Sperati family stamp forging ring existed, and that to escape punishment when outed as a forger in Italy, Giovanni moved to France. There's surely some truth in one or two of those very colorful stories. It is true that Sperati did move to France, and... Once settled there, it's where he lived the rest of his life. In 1911, a French stamp dealer hired him on a regular basis to forge stamps for him, as did a few Swiss dealers. Sperati and some of these dealers worked together for decades, producing and selling stamps. Giovanni married Marie-Louise Korn in August of 1914 in Paris, and Giovanni also began to use the adopted name Jean in his adopted country. In fact, he's probably best known in the historical record that way. In English, Giovanni and Jean both translate to the name John. The couple welcomed a daughter, Yvonne, on September 4, 1924, and in 1930, the family moved to Aix-les-Bains, where Sperati had space for his first artist studio. A few successful years later, the family moved to a larger villa known as Claire de Lune, or the Moonlight Villa. We're going to take a break for a word from our sponsors, and when we're back, we'll talk about Sperati's process behind making his stamps, and how he got arrested after the French Post determined his copies were actually the real deal. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Listen, you listen to true crime podcasts. You know that the world can be dangerous and unpredictable and that there will unfortunately be people who want to hurt each other. And so it's kind of nice to get a little peace of mind by having a good home security system. Just take a few precautions. And I recommend looking at Simply Safe Home Security. I've had my home broken into in the past and it was a terrible feeling, even though nothing that bad really happened. Aside from an intruder, I just really like knowing that I have a security setup that lets me check in on my pets when I'm not home. That is a huge peace of mind giver when I am out traveling. 
Simply Safe sent me a whole home security system, and I was really, really impressed by the variety of indoor and outdoor cameras they offer. And the whole thing is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash criminalia. That's simplysafe, S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com slash criminalia. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Hey, everybody, it's Holly. Listen, I've been doing stuff on stage since I was a kid, which means that I have been doing my makeup since I was a kid. And I can turn out a look when I need to, but on my day-to-day, I really like to keep it a little more relaxed and low-key. I don't have time for a full face most of the time. But that also means that Thrive Cosmetics can have me covered no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm doing something on stage, like I have an appearance or a live show, or I'm just running to the grocery store. Something in their line is perfect. And what I really love and what's important to me is that they are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. And to me, cruelty-free is very important in the cosmetics I use. I mentioned that I've been doing my makeup for a long time. I've gotten older in that time. And one of the things that I've done to refresh my look is switch over to their Brilliant Eye Brighteners and use something like a rose gold shade to really like go all around my eye and then just blend it out and get a daytime smoky look. It makes me look a little more youthful and more refreshed. And it's just easy as pie. And it means that I don't have to mess with a whole ton of products. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash criminalia. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash criminalia for 10% off your first order. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? (laughs) Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Welcome back to Criminalia. Let's talk about how Sparati defended himself against accusations that his stamps were genuine. So far, the forgers we've talked about this season have shown us different motivations for doing the work. Everything from trying to get revenge on critics, and that has been a popular one, to supporting many lovers. Sparati, it said, never considered himself a forger. He described himself as a copyist and an imitator. He enjoyed and took pride in his work, which he called his art, and it's said he often worked 16 hours a day, seven days a week. Sparati made his replicas to order. And what we mean by that is he didn't print sheets of stamps. He worked meticulously one stamp at a time, and he usually made copies of rare stamps. So here's a bit on how his process worked, which differs ever so slightly depending on who describes it. Sparati did not start from scratch each time he made a stamp. His fakes were based on genuine stamps. Usually, he would use a common stamp as the base, which he would chemically treat to remove the design, leaving behind key elements, including the original paper, the watermark, and the perforations. Depending on the base stamp, sometimes he could also use a genuine cancellation or another special postal marking. So a cancellation or cancel, for instance, is a marking 
applied to a postage stamp to prevent its reuse. The terms cancel and postmark today are used interchangeably. While these types of markings aren't relevant to all stamps, they can help provide authenticity. That treated base stamp became Sperati's canvas. He used a gelatin dichromate process and color filters to create color plates for his printing press. And then using his press, he printed onto the chemically treated base stamp. This preparation required skill and knowledge of photography, chemistry, papers, and inks. And a good forger would also need to know the exact registrations used during the printing of authentic stamps. From the paper and size to the cancel and perforations, Sparati stamps got it all correct. End-to-end, he developed a three-step approach to his process. One, as Holly just described, he forged a copy of a rare stamp. Two, he would then send it to a notable expert for evaluation. And three, once the stamp received a certificate of authenticity, Sparati, or usually a dealer in this instance, then put the stamp up for auction. In early 1942, Sparati sent a small selection of stamps, 18 to be exact, for evaluation to a dealer in Lisbon, Portugal, but the package was intercepted by French customs officers. Sparati was arrested by French authorities on a charge of, quote, exporting capital with an estimated worth between 60,000 and 300,000 francs without a permit to do so. So if customs had known he was sending forgeries, that would have been a different story. It would have been legal as long as they were identified as fake. In France, it was not against the law to copy stamps as long as you made it clear that they were not genuine and you did not sell those copies as authentic works. But they didn't know that Sparati's stamps weren't authentic, and they certainly looked authentic. And Sparati went on trial. In 1943, in what was a dramatic and sensational trial among the philatelic community, Sparati defended himself against accusations that his products were all genuine. That's right, he had to, and did, convince the court that the stamps in question had been made by him and were definitely not authentic. It had to have been some strange days for Sparati in court, defending his works as inauthentic against experts who were supposed to know better. To kick things off, Marius Gilbert, a well-regarded stamp expert, was heard by the court as an expert witness, called in to determine if Sparati's stamps were real or not. He declared that they were genuine and valued them around 70,000 francs. Sparati appealed Gilbert's findings as inaccurate, stating that the items in question were not stamps but, quote, artistic works. Another expert, forensic scientist Dr. Edmund Locard, popularly regarded at the time as the Sherlock Holmes of France, was brought in to evaluate the stamps as well. Locard's official report to the court included a complete inventory of the stamps, containing the catalog number, catalog value, as well as the value of each stamp. He estimated the stamps had an actual value of roughly 300,000 francs, stating, quote, A classic stamp in first-class condition is rare and worth considerably more than catalog value. His report dismissed Sparati's claim that these were, quote, artistic works. He concluded that, quote, with all certainty and evidence, all stamps mentioned are not imitations. 
He signed and submitted it to the court on January 4, 1944. Locard would examine Sparati's 18 stamps multiple times, each time concluding they were genuine. After multiple appeals, Sparati took control of his fate. He continued to tell the court that the stamps in question were fakes, all 18 of them, and that he had been making fake stamps for more than three decades, although his work had gone virtually undetected until just recently. This trial dragged on as the court reconvened over and over to hear expert evaluations, all of them claiming the stamps were legit. Sparati appealed the convictions with a continued assertion that he did not make real stamps. This litigation went on for years. Ernst Müller, a Swiss rarity stamp dealer and publisher of the philatelic magazine Die Basler Taub, recorded much of the trial. In his writings, he stated, quote, Disparati screams, moans, gestures, repeats himself, throws out his arms. His eyes, which are in deep sockets, sparkle. Finally, the Disparati diatribe is over and everyone present gasps for breath. Disparati the misunderstood messiah of philately, sweats and sits down. He wants to be considered the misunderstood artist. He wants to be honored, not to stand before the judge. He is the sole savior of philately. Collectors must be protected, not from disparati, but from the experts. Well, we didn't say his trial coverage was objective. Colorful, though. Finally, Sparati produced three identical sets of the supposed rare stamps that had been confiscated en route to Lisbon. Well-known French philatelist Léon Dubus was called to head a newly formed, court-appointed expert committee to review the three sets and the confiscated stamps. In January of 1948, after the group's review, Dubus declared the following to the court, quote, These stamps are all reproductions of valuable stamps. And these reproductions are such as would deceive even an advanced collector who has not available the material means to compare such pieces, and if he has not a profound knowledge and the necessary tests for the examination, then he may believe these imitations to be genuine stamps. Sparati, who had finally successfully proved that he made fakes, was fined 5,000 francs, basically for having neglected to declare the content of the packet to the postal authorities. Some accounts report that he was also fined 20,000 francs for tax evasion in violation of customs regulations. With the conclusion of his trial, we're going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. When we're back, we'll talk about how Sparati gave it all up. Well, mostly in the 1950s. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad, is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor, and meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. 
we're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Welcome back to Criminalia. Let's talk about how Sparati's works are, in their own right, valued and valuable today. Sparati smartly only produced a small number of near-perfect works, rather than flooding the market with low-quality fakes. To him, this was about quality, never quantity. And because his work was of the highest quality, and his highly publicized trial introduced his name and works to a new audience of collectors and dealers, his stamps were in demand. But no matter how many stamps he did or did not produce, he was so talented that nearly every single story about him talks about how the global philatelic community was concerned that he might pose a threat to philately. In 1953, or possibly 1955, depending on which report you trust, the Royal Philatelic Society London, the oldest philatelic society in the world, offered to pay Sparati if he would stop producing fakes and donate all his stock, tools, and printing materials to its museum. As many accounts that suggest it was the Royal Philatelic Society, there are alternate reports suggesting it was the British Philatelic Association that made this request. We're not sure of what the offer was. We've seen numbers like $40,000 US or 10 million francs. But regardless of how much and which society did the asking, Sparati decided it was time to retire and agreed to a deal. Sparati's stamp collection, which he called Livre d'Or or The Golden Book, was also included in the deal. The Golden Book is a catalog of all of his forgeries compiled by Sparati himself. It was his personal collection of 234 rare, forged stamps, each wrongly certified as genuine by experts. It also contains certificates from 17 different experts in the field across five countries. In 1955, the British Philatelic Association published a two-volume work called the work of Jean de Sparati, illustrating the forged stamps and the postmarks he'd created. As the years went on and more Sparati forgeries were identified, the Royal Philatelic Society London published a second volume to the Golden Book. Today, the Royal Philatelic Society London's Postal Museum, that's the Spear Museum of Philatelic History, houses his printing press, magnifying glass, and hand stamp. The Philatelic Foundation as well holds one of the larger reference collections of his materials. Of the 566 different items he is known to have produced, the Foundation's collection contains at least one copy of most of them. We don't mean to paint him as a perfect stamp forger, because of course he wasn't. Though, he sure really was close. There are two things that experts agree distinguish Sparati's forgeries from genuine stamps. Sparati, in his later works at least, was known to sign each of his pieces with soft pencil on the reverse side. It could be easily erased, but otherwise, it complied with French law stating forgeries had to be clearly marked as such, really, no big deal. The second is a very, 
very small detail, and one some think may have been due to a flaw that developed in Sparati's printing process. Some experts point out a very faint break in the horizontal lines in some of the shadowed areas of his stamps. And that's it! Sparati never talked about being a forger. He spoke about his work as art and, quote, my material. He never received philatelic honors, but he did see his work exhibited. In April of 1954 in London, his work was seen by hundreds of experts from all over the world. And on January 1st, 1956, he was honored by the Institute of Sciences, Letters, and Arts in Venice, where he was acknowledged for his special achievements in the field of artistic reproduction. British actor and philatelist Samuel West once said of Sparati, quote, he wanted experts to be better at what they did. Herbert Block, former chairman of the Philatelic Foundation's Expert Committee, once said while speaking at a conference, now, this conference was decades ago, but it's still very relevant to the work, quote, He was the greatest forger by far of all times. No one even approaches him. Today, collectors and dealers seek out Sparati's stamps, and some of his forgeries have become so collectible that they are now worth more than the originals that Sparati copied. And that's such as the 1865 96-cent stamp from Hong Kong. Said John Beddoes, a stamp dealer from North Bay in northeastern Ontario, Canada, to the Canadian Stamp News, quote, It adds a new perspective to collecting. It creates an opportunity for people to get samples of postal items that they can add to their collection. Some people only collect forgeries. Some people, like me, perhaps only collect bogus bevies, and we should have a drink. (laughs) It is time for another bogus bevy. And I wanted to do another one that was pretty recognizable to most Mm -hmm. people, since a lot of this involves France and French authorities. We're going to make a French 75, but it's not. So a French 75, just in case you haven't had one, which was allegedly invented in... 1915 in France by Harry McElhoney. It's allegedly named after French artillery, but it's a very easy, delicious drink. I love it. It's one of my favorites. It's a big brunch favorite. So that normally includes an ounce of gin, two ounces of champagne, a half ounce of lemon juice, and anywhere from two dashes to like a half ounce of simple syrup, depending on who's making it. And it has a lovely lemon peel garnish usually. And that's a French 75. We love a French 75, but that's not what we're making today. Because we want to make something that looks just like that, but is its own thing. Imitator. So. (laughs) Copyist. Right? (laughs) You could probably put together that a French 75 has a pretty light, pale, golden color from the lemon juice and the champagne. So ours, I'm going to confess up front. It's not an exact replica because I wanted to put something really yummy and golden in it that is a little too yellow, truly. Into a shaker, you are going to put a quarter ounce of turmeric syrup, which you can make yourself with a simple syrup. But I actually purchased a turmeric syrup just because I wanted to try one of the available ones on the market. They're great. Love them. And this is also, I wanted to use turmeric because I'm in the mood. It's autumn coming on. And I wanted to do something that might also fit the bill if you're looking for an autumnal drink, but you maybe don't want to do pumpkin. I don't understand that mindset, (laughs) but I want to offer up some sort of option for those people. Those Um, people include me. (laughs) Those people. Look, 
I'm as basic as they come when hey, it comes to pizza. I, I like my pumpkin spice, but I just don't feel like it has to be in everything. I do. Pumpkin spice, everything. <laughs> pumpkin spice deodorant. I have it. I use it. Um, all of it. Pumpkin spice, everything. Back to the yes. drink. This is, in your mixing shaker with ice, you're going to use a quarter ounce of turmeric syrup, a half ounce of ginger liqueur, a half ounce of vodka, and an ounce of Cointreau. And you're going to shake, shake that, and you're going to really give it a good shake. Because the one thing about turmeric, I think we've used it on the show lately before, it wants to separate a little bit like and become grainy. If you already have like a commercially made syrup, that tendency is going to be much lower than with a homemade version, in my experience. Just shake it like crazy. And then you're going to strain that into a pre-chilled champagne flute, and you're going to top it not with champagne, but with ginger beer. You can also, if you don't want that extra bite, you can do a club soda. I did that version and it was a very soft, I mean, it tasted like a soft drink, but I preferred the ginger beer version because I like the bite of it. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I think that would be great too. Oh, it's yum. It, and it does taste very autumn-y. Like that turmeric and the ginger together with that little bit of orange from the Cointreau. Yummy, yummy. And I'm calling this artistic works because in honor... It's our artistic work. I'm not making a copy. This is not a copy. This is my art. It's my art. <laughs> it's my art. If you would like to make this in a mocktail version, yeah. it's really pretty easy. You are going to just leave out the vodka because it's not bringing much to the table except ABV. It's just alcohol at that point. It's not changing the taste very much. You are going to do the same thing. Turmeric syrup. You'll do a half ounce of ginger syrup. And then in lieu of the Cointreau, you will either do, this is taster's choice, either use an orange syrup, which at that point you do have a lot of syrup going on, or a half ounce of a low sugar orange juice. You're mm. not going to get the same visual look, but it might taste better to you. And that's the more important thing. And then you'll top it with ginger beer. So let me run down those numbers again, just so they're easy. That's a quarter ounce of turmeric syrup, a half ounce of ginger syrup, a half ounce of orange syrup or orange juice, and then you mix those all together and you top it with ginger beer. Very easy. It's still called artistic works. That's a really good one to have for like brunchies. Not everybody wants to drink at brunch. I get it. So that's a good one to have on hand and make in batches because you can just be pouring it out. Very refreshing and light. It feels a little bit more fancy than just doing like a ginger ale or something like that. Yummy nummy in our tummies. And again, great for fall if you're in the Northern Hemisphere and walking into that magical and special season with us. Coming. <laughs> it's the most wonderful time of the year, in my opinion. We think it is wonderful that you have hung out with us to, to listen to this story of philatelist forgeries, which just delights me to no end. We will be right back here next week with another story of forgery and another drink. Criminalia is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then, fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd.